Garden and the Moon is a knowledge center bringing together teachings, insights, experiences, stories, people, beings. It is an evolutionary initiative that aims at the sharing of knowledge from its purest form, from all parts of the world, various backgrounds and spiritual paths, from nature really. It is a celebration of the living, approaching the profound and necessary renewals of education, medicine, ecology, anatomy, the way we have understood them today. This is a time for greatness. Everyone is invited to embody the life. To me, it's a great invitation to enter a new phase of, your, of our humanity with more left brain and right brain. If there is a doubt, it means there is a doubt. In this podcast, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane, who have known each other for quite some time, introduce the world of guides and the invisible, spirituality and joy, with the most practical and scientifically driven approaches that have been at the core of their work and contributions to the world. For me, the, the spirituality is not a, a magical world, it's a reality. In this first part of the podcast, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane share their perspectives on spiritual realms and other realities. They also expand on the brain, the right part of the brain versus the left part of the brain, and the importance of education. Hello, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane. It's such a pleasure to have you both on this podcast to discuss the topic of, of guides. First, you know, I would love to share a little bit on how this podcast came to life. One of the first thing I did a couple of weeks ago when I had the idea of like creating a, a podcast channel for Garden and the Moon um, is to write to Marie-Pierre, actually, because, you know, Marie-Pierre has been a dear friend of mine and uh, a pro guide actually in many ways in my life and I knew uh, she would be part of that series and so I asked her you know who, who uh, she would dream having a conversation with and uh, and she sent me a couple of names and Stefan you were uh, on top of that list and um, so I just you know emailed all those people and just waited you know like um for, for for some time and then I was planning on a on a trip and I was looking at you know what I would bring uh with me in terms of reading and that very day like that very moment before my trip I received Marie-Pierre's new book actually called Debout in French uh which means like stand up And in the plane, I was, I was reading the book and one page really, really like touched me profoundly, actually. And it's the page called Letter to the Guides. And it's really like a powerful uh, connection that Marie-Pierre shares, um, with, with the readers on how she, she had that sense of guidance at a very critical moment of her life. You read the book, like it, it, it's a very intense moment of her life. And so immediately I felt like something so profound, almost like I could hear 
or feel the guides that she was referring to in the in the letter so in the book so basically i you know i knew that the podcast would be around the notion of guides like i was just like ha huh, i want to learn more about that i want to understand and funny enough the next day actually stefan emailed me back and said oh yeah sure i would be interested to do a podcast with who and i shared you know with marie pierre and and that's how the podcast was created so it, it just felt like such a uh, an interesting like consequences of time uh in this whole setup of the podcast maybe we were guided emily the idea of being with stefan together you know exchanging but not him interviewing me or something like together as a companion in a way you know in some mm -hmm. kind of a path on this life it's an old idea and we never and stephanie is very busy i'm very busy we never did it so when you wow. ask the question his name came first so since you guys actually uh, know each other already uh something i didn't know when i connected the uh, to both of you separately like i just knew that marie pierre was interested in your work stefan but i had I didn't know that you guys knew each other. So I thought actually it would be interesting for both of you to um, introduce each other from the perspective of each other, uh, meaning Marie-Pierre, you would introduce Stéphane and Stéphane, you would introduce um, Marie-Pierre. That, that would give us a nice perspective of um, who you guys uh, truly are. So I, I, you start Marie-Pierre or I do? No, you start, huh? d'abord, huh? men first. I discovered Marie-Pierre many years ago, and uh, Marie-Pierre is for me one of the very uh, few person in the world who can mix in a very balanced way both science and spirituality. Uh, for me, spirituality is a reality. It means um, we are not alone. We are not only flesh and bones. There is a spiritual realm, we are influenced and we are in connection without knowing it with guide, with spirit beings, with a, another level of reality. But it's very rare and very difficult in our world, in our materialistic world, to find a way to address and to investigate this realm with a, a good grounded position. And Marie-Pierre is one of the very rare person uh, I, that I've met since 15 years, who can use a very rational tool to investigate those realms. She knows how to identify uh, forces, energy, and all those uh, levels of reality who influence us. And her work, and what she ex explained in, in her book, really give us a lot of tools for us to to make our life more rich. Uh, I mean, you know, for me, the, the spirituality is not a, a magical world. It's a reality. Mm -hmm. So you need to enter those realms with your own capacity, rational capacity, intellectual capacity. It's not just a matter of let it go and, and just uh, dive into this realm without knowing anything. You need a map. You need to know where you go. You need to know uh, from what you are made for, for what is participating in your life and the work of Marie-Pierre both as a, 
as a counselor. Uh, I, uh, I don't know how you present yourself, uh, Marie-Pierre. Uh, Practitioner. Yeah, Practitioner. but also Counselor. in the book, yeah. in, in, in her book, you, you may mm -hmm. find a lot of keys who, who can help you on a daily basis to be more aware of where we are and what we are doing on Earth. Thank you so much. This is such a great description of Marie-Pierre's uh, work. Um, and I think um, it's interesting because when, I, when I'm myself trying to describe what Marie-Pierre is about and what is her work, and I, I could really say that Marie-Pierre, you are a guide. Well, so is he in his way, uh, Stéphane. So, yeah. so if it's my, my turn, I, I would say that before all, the way I met you, Stéphane, uh, um, is he has a quality which I really value, which is, is first of all, is an investigative reporter. He did that uh, as a journalist for years, uh, and not just in, uh, in France, huh, but in Afghanistan, far away. And what I, what, what I really value is his ability to come up with questions. And even if you give him an answer and you think, he, got, he must have gotten it, that's it, I can, I'm off the hook, off the hook. He comes back with another question to actually get the essential part of what you have to say. And I remember that when I met him first, I had been approached by um, his wife, whom I respect very much, huh? Natasha Calestreme, who's also an author, who's also made headways in this field, in our field of energy. Um, she wanted an interview about the spatial side of my uh, practice, and I actually told her off. I told her, I'm not giving interview. I don't want any journalists chasing me anymore because you guys don't understand what I'm doing. And she was very, um, very good. Uh, we stopped the conversation and I gave her names. So she went to try to get those other people. But then as she is, she went back. She asked again, and I said, well, the only way we're going to talk about this, because it was for a TV um, uh, a reportage, huh? uh, is like, I want to be able to talk about the timing aspect of my practice, which is invisible to Westerners. They don't get it. And mm -hmm. she said yes. He said yes, obviously. We met. And from that moment, um, I realized that they were... Um, not just serious journalists. They were uh, complete human beings, honestly trying to gather information, data, tracks, to actually then not keep it to themselves, but to actually be able to share it with the audience at large. So one of my work is about transmission. So for Stéphane, I found in him, although we don't see each other much and we live far away, but a true companion in terms of moving things forward to open our consciousness. So I, you know, I have a tremendous respect for the work that he's doing. And, and also the first time I've actually physically met him, I felt there was a presence. I didn't know his story. I didn't know, and I had not read his books. And later him and I, we talked about that presence, you know. So to me, it was almost like a, very meaningful and magical moment. And this is because of what he carries. I think what's really interesting actually in hearing this is how 
tangible and concrete um, your approaches towards different realms of reality is. Um, I think for most people, you know, referring to spirituality or guides, inner guides and so on feels a bit um, unreal. Uh, it feels like something coming out of your imagination and, and, and how uh, truthful this could be if you can, one cannot touch it, one cannot see it, one cannot prove it. And um, I think both of you are guiding people into approaching those, uh, those parts of ourselves and of the world um, from from very tangible and, and, and better understandable uh, perspectives. And I would love to hear more about that um, from your point of view. What I just studied in the past months is the importance of our education. The reality is not real because it's real around us because we perceive it. And perception of the whole world is the most important aspect to understand. Our brain is a machinery who is building itself while it's observing. You know, when a baby born, his brain is uh, creating amazing amount of connection because he's observing, smelling, hearing things from the external world. So after weeks and months and then years of uh, such a connection in the brain, the brain builds itself to interact with the world uh, is living in. But what we don't learn to observe, what we keep outside of our reality, meaning spirits, this other realm, step by step, we forget how to, to see those things. Because since in our reality they don't exist, we don't create the neuronal link to observe it and to interpret and to understand it. So very slowly, after four or five years in, in the baby brain, those um, connections just disappear. And the natural connection we may have had with the spiritual realm just stop functioning in our brain. So when we are uh, 19, 20 years old, we have a brain who is perfectly functioning in our materialistic world, but doesn't allow anymore any access to subtle realms, to spirits, to yeah, all this reality. Uh, it's a kind of a circle. Since we don't perceive anymore this spirituality, we don't believe it exists. So since we don't believe it exists, we don't perceive it. And, and there is no solution in, in this, in this uh, logic. The only solution is when something happened in your life, an accident, death, illness, something that break the, the fortress, we, we made our body and our brain is a kind of fortress who, who help us to, to, to live in this world and who protect ourselves from the outside. But in doing that, it also block us from everything that could be unusual. Maybe some of the people who are listening to us today have this experience of being confronted with something very unexpected. For instance, you are walking in the street and suddenly there is a, a totally unexpected thing that has happening. Uh, let's say an accident. It needs in your brain a couple of seconds to realize what's happening because it's, it's, it's unusual, it's unexpected. So you, you don't have the wire 
to, to understand it immediately. It takes a few seconds. Things like spirituality, guide, uh, influence for other realms are more than unexpected. They are unbelievable. So it takes a lot of time in our life to, to trust enough the, the little uh, sign they may send to us to, to realize it's real. So just going back to the question of education, um, w when you say, you know, like teaching and understanding the, um, those different realms, you know, uh, around us um, is, is so important. Do you do you believe that this is something that perhaps we, we we should teach kids now? You know, like it should be part of like the curriculum, uh, for them to maybe understand how to connect with the tree and and hear what it has to say. Um, how do you how do you feel? People and society and humanity can reopen to those uh, realms and fields of reality. Yes, just look at the, the, the traditional uh, population all over the world. When you are grown up in the rainforest in Amazonian and you 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 are teach to interact with the spirit realm, you I mean it's reality. It's not magical. It's 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 reality to to try to connect with the animals you want to hunt and you know where he is. Because, I mean, you have access to this reality. You need to cure yourself from this illness or this illness. You immediately know what kind of plant you may use because the spirit of the plant is a part of you and you may have access to it like that. But because you have been, you have been raised in this reality, in all reality, in all world, in our materialistic world in the West, we are teached that uh, spirituality is not reality. The reality is only matter, flesh and bones. There is no, I mean, even the emotion, it's a very new uh, reality for us. 20 years ago, the emotion doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with our reality. It was just uh, the activity of the brain. So to go back to our discussion, I think what Marie-Pierre gives us access is she, she helps us to, to restart our education. She is like a teacher who, who can teach us the, the access to this, uh, to this realm how time and space uh, may interact in the world. Why I'm living in this house and how this house may have an influence on my work, on my life with my wife. Uh, why is it happening now and not two months before? Or why more energy will be available for me? I mean, all those things, um, it, again, it's not magic. It's a matter of being educated to this reality. And, and Maripia really, uh, help us to be educated in a very rationalistic way to this realm. I just want to put a, a perspective that is almost like an historical or a cultural perspective. Since uh, Le Siècle des Lumières, since uh, like let's say 300 years ago, 400 years ago, our society, society moved from, first of all, a rural base connected with the outside. Let's not talk about even religion. Uh, we had some great philosophers, you know, we are all uh, children of Descartes, who did say, I think, therefore I am, je pense, donc je suis. The, the reference, the guide to our daily life became the head, our mental energy, our ability to reason, our ability to be scientific. And, and this was great progress because we got out of what could be seen also as superstition, 
because someone who would constantly only wait to see a cat crossing the streets or not crossing the street before making a decision would not be able to make progress in life either because a lot of what I try to transmit has to do with signs. But the question is, what are the signs that are valuable to the decision-making process I'm trying to go through or not? So as a culture, Western, we've, I mean, Western uh, Europe, let's say, the Western world, we made huge progress in becoming more rational, left brain, and gradually also because we left our, the countryside, we left rural area, we left the forest, we left the villages to move to cities where you still have trees, but not as many, for example, and we started to live indoor, we gradually didn't need, or thought we didn't need as much of our right brain, which has to do with the ability, to, with analogical thinking, the ability to connect dots that are not exactly visible, or the ability to actually feed intuition. You know, we stopped listening to instincts because we didn't need our instinct to, to hunt. We could just go to a supermarket. So I'm making everything, you know, like uh, 400 euros in, uh, in a few minutes, Bennett. So for me, because for personal reasons, I made a detour, you know, I went outside of my French educated road and dived into Chinese metaphysics, right? And there, for example, there is one practice where you could make sense of the weird things happening to you. What Stefan was mentioning, it could be outside an accident and then you need to rewire what he was saying. But this, that, that um, technique, for example, would take into account what you see. So I get out of my house and I see somebody dressed as a clown on a bicycle. You know, like how often that arrives, you know? So I, I check the time. So for the Chinese old way, currently a lot of those techniques are lost yeah, since the Cultural Revolution. This is a message that has been sent to us while we were not even asking a question. Right. And then there's a process that allows you to decode it and see, yeah, maybe this is, and so on. So as Westerners, we don't have those anymore. Well, we don't even have those types of technique. But we, when we, I'm talking to uh, hunters or fishermen or um, the members of the Wampanoag tribe on the east coast of the U.S. where I live, you know, it's fantastic. First of all, the first thing they told me, now I know, huh, be quiet. It's like my Qigong teacher, like, shut up, because your question is useless. Just wait and be quiet, right? So the, <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is that before actually going to set a teaching in school to talk to a tree, which ultimately I would love to see that happen, we used to have technique. I remember when I was young, because now I'm very old, actually, right? I mean, years have passed by, you know, I know, uh, actually, it's been 25 years that I'm doing this. Huh? Um, I remember we had in school, in course d'orientation. So you would drop the kids in a forest with a challenge. And we had several teams and we had to find to come back on our own as quick as possible. This is where I learned how to use a compass. And so this compass could be 
taught as to read a compass as an extension to geometry. It's useful in nature. But so the the at this point, I, I try actually even to look on the website of the French Minister of Sports to see what was still taught in order to allow us to use our physical skills to locate ourselves and to also, I went even further, to defend ourselves in we in a difficult situation, right? Couldn't find anything, actually. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but couldn't really find anything. So at this point, we are left on our own to re... It's not even to relearn, to be open and re to retrieve and develop skills that we were born with. The point of mm -hmm. Stéphane earlier. Huh? Um, if you're in a very rational type of education where you have to be good in math to get that job, whatever, um, the emphasis is not on being able to check signs around you. Um, you know, you, you don't have it. So uh, the exercises I would propose are there to prevent us from preemptively from having to wait for a weird event or an accident or a disease to fall upon us to start rewiring. Because I believe, I believe that we are born, I mean, it's not even a belief, we are born with two sides of our brain. And science knows that one is more linear and the other one is more creative and, and can more function in terms of analogy. So my take is, okay, we've overinvested on the left one. It worked, it was good for centuries, but we're starting to see the limits of everything science, everything rational, right? Like um, the way we're handling some crisis, you know, we, we have... We have numbers, we know what we're doing, but it's not working. And my take is that time has come to reopen our senses, to go back in some ways in nature or in situation where we have to feel, hear, see, move, so we can offset what often happens which is, in, we, I used to say, or I say it in one of the books, I talk about avoir les pieds dans la tête. We have our feet in our head. So we're going in circle. Oh, why did she told me that? Why did I fail in this? So, and we're in an armchair. We're not even outside. So the first thing, when this kind of negative thoughts come, is not to deny them, but it's take our body and move, make a move, go outside, or go from the chair to the armchair. Just move a little bit because our bodies are the vessels of our soul. And we need both sides of the brain. So what I see actually, and, and the work of Stefan, again, his wife as well, you know, the, and, and other now becomes, is becoming more visible because what we've ended up with, apart from not reading the signs effectively that are sent to us all the time, is that we ended up in situations where there's tremendous suffering 
people are lost. People feel disconnected from each other, from themselves. People have doubt. People feel guilty when they don't achieve and they don't see the path forward. So this is not about being happy or unhappy. This is about being alive and connecting with what we carry, the strengths we carry. We, we all in this together because we come from a culture that made a decision with our great philosophers and so on uh, to chante, you know, to shut down uh, some abilities that we all born with. And it's not too late. Beautiful. Science was a way for us to, to avoid a lot of questions. In this part of the podcast, both Marie-Pierre and Stéphane share their personal experiences that got them to rewire their brain and access other realms of realities, which ultimately changed their lives. So what happened in your life um, that you had to rewire your brain, in fact? Like, were there something, you know, that made it that suddenly you had like a hard moment or something very profound connecting within you that, that gave you this new outlook on yourself and life? Um, was it a slow process? Was it something you were kind of born with? Um, was it part of your education? Um, how did that um, came about uh, so that you, you, you feel it so deeply today? You know, Emily, I can answer that first, if Stéphane is okay with that. So you yes. already heard that I, uh, I know how to orient myself in the woods from an early uh, age, but that's just a little piece. Huh? Uh, for me, the connection with China, with the Chinese um, traditional medicine, and uh, was, I can root it back to the fact that I was treated by acupuncture when I was six years old in replacement mm -hmm. of very painful penicillin shots that were hurting me and doing nothing, right? Uh, so that was courageous on my parents' part, and that connected me with some weird medicine where you put, you don't take, you don't ingest anything, you have needles. The guy also was very silent, the doctor, he wouldn't say anything, but I felt I was getting better and I didn't understand it. But then there's many, there's several uh, moments, I call it thresholds, when you pass, like when you enter a new house, a new uh, a succession of different phase. But to me, the key, the, really the key was that, uh, I'm, I'm always moved when I talk about it, um, uh, when I was told by a Western doctor in the US that I had only three months left to live. Because I had uh, tumors in my liver, and those had to be uh, had to be uh, cancer. And I uh, anyway. So at that moment, I was already studying Chinese astrology, and uh, I was already into this. But I did it undercover. My friends didn't know because I felt somewhat ashamed. And uh, I was told, uh, uh, you know, you didn't study all this. You didn't did all this grand école to ended up being an astrologer. I mean, I heard so much of, uh, of those uh, things. But then uh, when, but I moved. The verdict 
of the Chinese man was the end of something. The end. You need to, something changes, changes. He barely spoke uh, English. It was change. You need to change. So what the rational Western medicalized scientific world said was a prediction of my death within three months. While someone from out of field uh, was telling me end of a chapter, open the new one. So I heard this. And when I woke up from the surgery, it was a massive surgery. I mean, two blood transfusion, it was horrible. First of all, I was not dead. And I told myself, if I make it now, I'm gonna not denounce what has been, what my education has been. I'm gonna explore that other field that I've been interested in for a long time. And then within a year, I will decide if I go back or not. Within a year, the scientific person, I studied math, you know, of me realized that the relevance of my readings were relevant, was, was high. So if you study math, you know, if it's 50% okay, this is just luck. And then I decided, okay, I hold my promise. I'm not going to go back to my old world. I'm going to benefit from this new part of my life that I thought I may never have anymore to really do whatever I can to learn more, to spread more, to share more, and to help other people, you know, live. Yeah, I have a very similar uh, path. I am a pure product of our society, meaning I had a lot of wound coming from my childhood and maybe before, which I didn't know. And those wounds were influencing me. So I became war correspondent very early when I was 19 because I was fascinated by war. I was fascinated and obsessed by violence. I wanted to understand all this thing. So I became journalist. And since I was a freelance journalist, all my energy, my, my total 200% energy was focused on trying to make that job sustainable for my life. So I, I stopped being journalist, being war correspondent, and the years uh, were following the years, and, and I was more and more focused on my work. And even though I had some interest in spirituality and, and esotericism and such a things when I was a teenager, and uh, I, was, I, I had a lot of questions about the meaning of life, all those questions were just put aside, and uh, I didn't have time to investigate this. I didn't have the interest to interest to investigate this. For me, the reality was the world is uh, in a bad shape. There is a lot of war. I want to understand why people are killing each other. This is the reality. This is the only reality worth to investigate and to work on. So I did it for more than 10 years. And then in 2001, I was in Afghanistan with my brothers and uh, a big team. I was, uh, I did set up a big project there. It was still a Taliban time. And one morning of April, uh, we had a car accident and the four people in the car uh, were killed. And one of them was my brother. And this accident really changed everything because it, uh, it bring back all those questions I didn't have time to investigate, like, uh, what are we doing here? I mean, is there a meaning of life? Suddenly this question 
became again the most important question in my life and I was 32 at this time uh, since this moment it was for me impossible to go back to my uh, to my sleep to my daily life without questioning the meaning of our existence but as Marie Pierre uh, who is a, a scientific who has a scientific background I, ha I had a, a journalistic background. I know how to do an investigation. I was working on terrorism. I was working on drug trafficking. So I know how to do an investigation in a very difficult, on a difficult problem and, and, and subject. So I start to investigate, okay, what, what do we know about death? What do we know about uh, the relation between consciousness and brain? Because it seems obvious that uh, we are who we are because our brain is creating our personality. And uh, since uh, the brain is stopped functioning, the personality and, and ourself just disappear and there is nothing left. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be obvious. And religious and spiritual belief is just a kind of a magical belief. So I start going to see neuroscientific medical doctor to, to ask them, okay, what do we know? What's happening when we die? And uh, to my surprise, I discovered that... Uh, a lot of scientific uh, researchers are saying that we don't know. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we suspect that when brain is stopped functioning, we are not conscious anymore, but it's, ju it's just an hypothesis, it's just a supposition. And uh, to my surprise, I also discovered that many people who, who had brain injury or heart attack or a car accident leave uh, experience by the name of near-death experience where they seem to be more conscious than they are when they are fully active, uh, while their brain is not functioning anymore or very badly functioning. So all comes people may have very intense experience while their brain is not functioning or very, very badly functioning. So step by step, I discovered that we live in a society who pretend to be rational, but it's not because we, we, we are confronted on a daily basis to many, many, many unexplained experience, unexplained subtle and subjective experience that we cannot explain in our materialistic worldview. So the attitude of our society is just to say, oh, there is nothing to it. I mean, it's not interesting. Those millions of people who have had a near-death experience, maybe it's something in their brain. I mean, this is obvious that nothing happened real. I mean, it's what we call rational. But when we start investigating those near-death experience and many other kind of experience related to consciousness, we realize that, no, we cannot uh, just dismiss those. We cannot say there is nothing interesting, interesting there because there are those experiences, for instance, near-death experience, uh, they are asking us a, a key question. So step by step, I mean, it just takes me a few weeks <laughs> few weeks of serious investigation as a journalist to realize that uh, we don't know what's happening when we die. We don't know if consciousness stops when brain is stopping. And there is a lot of indication that it's maybe the opposite. So as a journalist, it was very mind-blowing for me because I was thinking that I was being grown and educated in a world that was rational and, and serious and scientific. And I realized that it was not. And I realized that science was a kind of a, a way for us to, to avoid a lot of questions, a lot of questions. 
And um, so then as a journalist, I keep on doing my investigation. I keep on asking questions and, and, and working. And the more I was doing that, the more I realized that uh, we kind of um, uh, refuse to be challenged by all by, by millions of experience of people. And ju just, I, I, I have a proposition for the listener, just try to ask around you people who may have had uh, an, an extraordinary experience. Just ask, ask your friend, your family, people you know very well, ask them seriously without joking, just seriously and with respect. Did something unexplained ever happened to you in your life. And you will be very surprised to realize that uh, those unexplained and, and very curious and very bizarre and sometimes called supernatural phenomena happen very, very often around you. And we don't talk to each other about that, about that. Try to open a space where you can talk about that. Try to open this space in your family or in your group of friends and you will be very surprised because it's real, it's real and it's happening. So again, when I start being uh, interested in those subjects, when I start doing investigation, I was, I was really totally mind-blowing by, by, the, by the fact that I, I realized we, we were surrounded by a lot of unexplained phenomenon and it opens, it, it opens me to to yeah to 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 have a, another way of seeing the spiritual uh, teaching i i i start to investigate the religious and the spiritual uh, knowledge not as a seeker but as a journalist okay if there is a life after death maybe religion may have a few things in common we obviously know and see the difference in between different religion but maybe if there is a reality to this, maybe there is something real and something, sorry, something could be the same. And for instance, I went to Amazonian and I tried to test a shamanic uh, brew and I, and I did shamanic experience. And a couple of months after I was in India and I was doing investigation on the Bardo Todol, which is the Tibetan book of the death. And to my surprise, I discovered that what I did experience in Amazonia, where I was doing shamanic journey was exactly the same that was written in this Tibetan book of the death that was discovered in the 8th century describing what's happening after death and step by step going this investigation and, and putting it further I, I discovered that all, all those knowledge are there and, and available around us and it's, it's uh, as I understood what my peer discovered through this Chinese knowledge who, who, who made its proof for a millennium, uh, we we have the the tool to to enter those realms. Throughout this process of investigation, um, did you feel like more connected to your brother somehow? Did you feel like you could finally, you know, uh, feel maybe like where he is, like beyond time and space? It was difficult because. Um, I don't know for you, Marie-Pierre, but for me, it was a very schizophrenic process because I am a journalist. I am a rational guy. I ask questions and I want answer to my question. But I am also, uh, and I discovered it through shamanism, I am also an intuitive person. I have a subjective experience. Uh, but for a long part of my life, I didn't trust my subjective experience. 
I only trusted my subjective experience if I was able to prove it, which is surprising. But uh, because if you, if you just use your uh, loving relationship to illustrate what I'm saying, it's like if I was saying, okay, I don't love my wife because I cannot prove it. I mean, this is, this is kind of crazy. And I had exactly the same. I mean, I love my wife and I know it. Even I can prove it. But I was not trusting my my intuition. I was not trusting my vision. Even I, I can tell you a little story that happened 15 years ago when I was in Peru. I did participate in a shamanic uh, ceremony where I drink ayahuasca, which is a very, very strong psychedelic brew. In During those ceremonies, when you drink ayahuasca, you, un, you, you, you can perceive uh, other realm of reality and you can perceive spirit world. At this time, I was intellectually uh, okay with this, but I wanted to experience it. So one night, I mean, I tried night after night to see my brother. And one night, I had millions of vision, and, and it was a very, very difficult process. But at the end of the night, when I was coming down a little bit, I was sitting and I was recovering my consciousness in some way. And suddenly, I saw uh, on my feet the, the silhouette of my brother. And uh, I looked at him, and I was surprised. And my brother looked at me, like also if, if he was surprised, and I had the sense that he was saying, oh, at last you can see me. And I was looking at him and I said, oh, I'm totally stoned. I, I just make this up. And suddenly my brother fade, fade away and, and he disappeared. And the next morning, Natasha, my wife, was with me. And the next morning I, I talked to Natasha and I said, oh, at this moment of the night, it was surprise. It was it was strange because I think I saw Thomas, and Natasha looked at me and said, "But I saw him also." So mm -hmm. I asked her, "Okay, describe me how you saw her, or you saw him," and she described me exactly the same vision I had. I mean, it was a shock. It was a shock because for the journalist, it was still not enough for me to believe that I really saw my brother. But I also discovered that maybe my, my, my research of a, of a very, very strong proof could be a kind of uh, obstacle of a difficulty to, to, to open to this, to this realm and to really perceive it. It's almost like a proof may also be the result of the, the rational mind we're like emphasizing in the West, you know, in a way it's, it's part of that. Maybe sometimes it's it's not like you need the same kind of proof, you yeah. know, to make something real. I mean, uh, for, for many years, I was asking a, a kind of uh, hard proof, hard evidence. But hard proof and hard evidence are, um, I mean, sometimes they are not available. Like, 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 mm -hmm. like in love. I mean, if I, if I ask my wife, prove, prove me that you love me. And if I keep on asking that, and if I don't, engage in my marriage because I'm still waiting this proof, I will never be happy in my marriage. And I think regarding life after death, regarding uh, the influence of our guide or the spiritual realm, if we keep on asking a real evidence, a real proof, 
before uh, being interested or before paying attention to to this sign i mean we can maybe never benefit from it we we need to kind of find a, a, a good balance in between those two parts of the brain we have we we need to find a balance we, we cannot satisfy entirely the, the the left brain we are like in a in a courtroom you know sometimes you may have uh, 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 the, the the real proof to to uh, i mean you, you may have the proof that this guy killed this other guy but sometimes you don't have the gun you don't have the body you don't have the proof but you may have you may build step by step a large amount of different evidence that will drive you to understand that this guy really killed the other guy and it's what we can do it's it's what uh, it's what marie pierre is doing and it's what i did as a journalist I didn't find a real evidence, a real proof, but I find many, many little evidence that drove me to, to understand that this spirituality was a reality around us. So I, I would like, to, I don't know if uh, Stefan will allow me, but I'm going to maybe catch you a little bit by surprise, but I am going to, my memory of meeting you the first time in the 14th, or, or I don't know if you remember, in the office you had in the 14th, to me, I'm, okay, I'm going to start differently. I've always asked myself if it was not your brother who actually did whatever he did uh, to have us meet. Because in our first meeting, I don't know if you remember, I asked you, you know, you had a, a blanket, you had a beautiful blanket, a piece of cloth behind you. I know if you remember, and I ask you the provenance of it. Um, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but this is at the moment where I, I, you told me some of your story. And to me, I could not concentrate on the issue we were discussing without clarifying who was by your side I can't say helping you because you're a guy who don't really need help. You know, you're strong. You can uh, go by yourself in the middle of the Afghani mountains. But, but it was, and there was, this, I had to ask and at least acknowledge that presence that was in the room when we first met. So this to me is, has always been linked to your brother whom I, I felt entered also my life at moment, my life as a real person uh, in this. So this is just a, an important point because I don't, don't even know if we've discussed it ever since, but we, well. He just accepted it. Finally, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane provide insights on how to approach the current world we live in today, bringing everything back to the necessary inner work and emphasize on joy in everything we do. Acceptance and patience. Second, there's a very key point for also the people listening to us is that it's, it has to do with accepting accepting information that arrive, uh, not systematically, but even though we don't have the explanation that goes with it. So 
there's times in consultation or even when I'm walking in the streets where it feels there's, there's an information that comes for the person that is there or for the person I'm crossing. And again, with my initial training, born in France, I spent years in therapy with a, a therapist that I really respect, trying to prove to myself that I was crazy or that it was, it was not useful, you know? And I actually joke in one of my books where I said that whenever I drive by the house of this uh, great therapist, I feel I bought all his, his new roof, you know, like with all the, th the sessions that I spent trying to understand what was not rational. And there's one anecdote, which is when I started to agree to request of um, consultation in houses, you know, to read the energy of space, I was developing headaches, like migraines, you know, like, and because the people had come to me because of uh, a connection initially through Chinese teachers, you know, like they, they, the, the pressure was high and the situation were, were not easy. So, and in therapy, I would bring those migraine and I would say, isn't it a sign that I shouldn't drop my regular job, which was great job, and not engage into something that makes me sick. So session after session after session, until one day I had this weird thought, which was, what if those headaches are a way to prevent me from engaging that to, in a path that is actually mine? It's just not rational enough. So a part of my head is resisting, you know? There's, because we all carry resistance to suddenly jump into a bucket where we use the two sides of the brain. So I remember that I opened the window and I went, it was sunny, and I talked to the universe. I mentioned talking to the universe several times in, in, in my reading. So it's like you in my reading, interesting, reading of, of uh, life, but also in my writing. So I opened and I said, okay, okay. I give up, I give up, I'm gonna go in that path, okay? But please, you stop the headaches, right? So it's like suddenly I was negotiating with something that was invisible, uh, all by myself, talking loud in front of trees, and okay, I calm down. Next session, um, I think I talked about it with the shrink, but the thing is that next consultation, no headache. Right? And what I've, the reason in my first book where I, th I thank my shrink was that he didn't try to rationalize it. He just accepted it. So without trying to be, and so from that moment on, I, I'm always wondering that, and I share that with, with, with people, huh? I'm always wondering what if, what do we read as a reason not to engage into changing our posture because something happened is actually a resistance servicing the forces, the rational forces, because the rational forces may not want the world to change. I mean, this I'm, I can go to some kind of a 
political uh, uh, reading, you know, what if everyone gets more connected to their internal compass that tell them don't engage in that activity, stop going to that job where you, you work in a um, concrete building with no windows that you can't open, open. This would empower people to realign with who they are and could create some kind of um, chaos, little chaos in a company, little chaos in a family that leads to maybe a separation, uh, a little chaos in a company that may be worth it to avoid. Otherwise, what we see, there's an epidemic of burnout, right? So there are a lot of things that I don't understand. Like when I was sick and I, was, I saw myself dying, you know, last year uh, with, with the flu that nobody knew it was already COVID, you know, like there was a moment where I saw myself going and I had this information that's, told me you should write. And I was like, very sick, but like writing? I just finished a book. Why am I gonna do another one? But I was so sick thinking I wouldn't, I would never even see my children again because I was in France, they were in the US. I, I just gave up. I gave up and I said, okay, okay. Soon after the fever went down, I recovered, it took me, um, long time, weeks and weeks, I tried to go back to doing consultation, but I was coughing, so I couldn't do the consultation because I had lost my voice. So what can you do once you recover your strength silently? You can write. So this, how can I explain this? There was nothing in me, who, I was not ready to write another book. Well, that book came out in the fall, in a few months. So what was that about? And the book is about giving more and more keys and clues for people to, le, le titre debout, hein, to stand up. But to stand up is not to conquer, it's just to be who you are. So, and then there's the question, how do I distinguish a good sign coming to me from a sign that tells me don't go that road? Well, for me, uh, remember the story of the headache, I keep an open mind and I have developed over the years, and this is not magic, this is just regular exercises, you know, like a, I've developed a way to, to take the temperature reading of my energy level, okay? If I, I've stopped seeing people who would shrink my energy level, some of them, I still love them, but I have to be very careful. So, and the key word for me is joy, joy. What brings you joy? So how revolutionary this is. How can you run a society where people are not really looking to be happy, but are, are uh, trying to reorganize, um, Stefan said the map, you know, to remap their brain, uh, reorganize their daily life, so they could feel like they want to jump out of bed in the morning. So am I doing something that makes me feel like I don't want to go, I don't want to move, I'm hurt, or am I little by little doing 
little things in my life every day that bring me back closer to a fuller sense of myself. I choose the second, the latter. And it's not easy because you're going to be a disturbing force in your environment. You know, you may not have your phone on all the time, 24 hours a day. How, how difficult is this today when people want to reach you all the time, everywhere, no matter what? I don't go eat something that makes me sick because I know what it is that makes me sick. That's very difficult. So, so later, that the, the martial art aspect, I don't do martial art. I have a lot of respect for those, but I did a lot of Qigong, you know. Then there's the question of using whatever we can to shield ourselves from influence we don't want. So to me, it's the samurai approach to protecting my energy level. You know, sometimes I do this, sometimes I, sometimes I put my hand in front of my head, sometimes I go on, the, on one step on the side and so on, because the most, the, the highest asset we have, asset, is our energy level. Let's protect it. So would you say your body is your guide? Uh, my body is the telephones that receive some information that sometimes comes from elsewhere. Where? I don't know. Ask Stefan. So the, the body talks. The body cannot talk in words. The body talks in, in a little pain here and there. So I listen to my body, absolutely. I learned to, it, to do that. What suggests Marie-Pierre, how to who differentiate what's your imagination from what the sign? When you have only a mental approach of this question, I mean, you are lost because your, your, your mental cannot judge uh, and cannot analyze a sign. If you start analyzing a sign, you already miss the sign. Uh, but in the meantime, as a journalist, I cannot do anything else but analyzing things because I, I only do only know how to do that. You know, I, I really remember a couple of weeks after the death of my brother, I flew back to Afghanistan with my parents. I remember my father who was outside in the house of, in Kabul and suddenly he saw a very strange bird uh, flying over the garden. And he looked at me and he said, is this bird a sign? How, how do I know <laughs> if it's a sign or not? And um, I didn't have any answer for him. It takes me years and years and years, and, and Marie-Pierre was very helpful for me to understand how to answer this kind of question. And as you said, it's one of the one of the answers possible is to listen to your body. What's happening to your body? Is there a joy? Is there a pain? What's happening in your yeah in your emotion and in your cell when you see these birds? And I like what you just said, Marie-Pierre, about joy, because it's a very simple tool, but it's, it's very efficient, I think. Each time you ask a question about, uh, should I meet this person? Should I choose this job? Should I go this place? Should I do this on this? What's happening in you? Is there a kind of little joy? Is, is there a doubt? I remember uh, there was a healer who was telling me, if there is a doubt, it means there is a doubt. I think it was a little easy, but in the meantime, it's what you say, Marie-Pierre. There, if there is a doubt, it means there is something that is not 100% joy in, inside of you. There is something that is not totally harmonic in, inside of you. So 
if there is this kind of dirt, it means that maybe you should question your position, question the time when you are in, question the person you are interacting with. For me, who was really, really, really stuck in my mental and in my brain, trying and starting to pay attention to my emotion, to my deep emotion, to my body movement, uh, uh, was a, a first step to, to who helps me a lot to, to pay more attention to, to those signs. And, and Emily, I want to make a direct connection to what uh, Stefan just said with this great answer he got from the healer, when there is doubt, there is doubt. Okay, so this is a doubt. How tangible is a doubt? But I like to always make a transposition to bring a parallel analogical thinking. Yeah? And I like to when you hiking, uh, I hike a lot, you know, and, uh, and, and in areas where I'm shy, I still can find places where there's no connection with the Wi-Fi and so on. It still exists. Okay. So in the real world of nature, to me, and, and you find a stone, Yesterday, there was a stone field in the Vosges where I was yesterday. Stone field, was, you had to cross the stone field. So in the real world, when there's a stone, there's a stone, right? Stone is visible. So to the mind, the stone is the doubt. When there's a stone, there's a stone. When in your mind there's a doubt, there's a doubt. But the stone is visible. We know that we're going to have to go above it, around it, or, or go back. So because we used to visible things. But when you do the parallel in the invisible world, what are the roadblock? Doubts are part of roadblocks. So sometimes the doubt, is, it, the doubt could say many things. Some instances, the doubts say too early, don't go yet. Sometimes the doubts say, oh, you please connect to your reservoir of information and experience about that person or that place. So it, it's an invitation for you to dig deeper. Sometimes the doubt is, is for you to not to give up, but to approach the situation from a different angle. But doubts, they are mental, right? So, oh, you have always doubts. Oh, you always doubt everything. You know, you can hear the rational discourse shaming people from having doubt. But if you have a doubt, cherish it. Cherish it and talk to the doubt. Who are you? And I have a, a question which is always, where are you coming from? Who, who, who's your master? You know, and then you're going to realize that, oh, um, uh, for example, for, for me, it was like uh, I thought I would never be able to sing and I still don't st sing really well. But when I finally confronted that fear of, of singing, I, it took me a while, but I realized that it was the voice of schoolmates who were making fun of me when I was uh, singing. Right. So I totally forgot that there had been something in my memory that shamed me for having a voice that is too grave, too low, to be able to sing like the other one. So when you have doubt, think about a stone on the path. What is it telling you? So now the, the question I will have for you, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane, is how to approach 
this necessary rewiring and um, rebalancing of, of a lot of things in our lives from uh, from a more macro level perspective um is this actually something we will and can uh, happen from a general collective approach or is this something that no matter what will have to come like within ourselves first um and more generally like how can can it play today in the in the situation we're in i feel Probably a, a lot of people are interested in the topic we're, we're talking about today, guides also because they feel a bit lost. They feel like the, the, the sense of security um, that had been prevailing for years is um, redefining itself and um, maybe that rewiring and that rebalancing that we 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 talk throughout um, is something that could happen from a more general aspect. So w- what would be your point of view on that? Currently, the world for many doesn't go round anymore or doesn't go forward. The things, the world, the way we knew it has stopped. You know, we can't travel the way you want this and this and that. I don't need to redo the catastrophic uh, things we're hearing all the time. So in the Chinese approach, you know, we're in a situation where we cannot be engaged as much as before in a continuous, continuous movement. We used to be yang, the difference between yin and yang, we used to be in movement. We used to be able to do whatever we wanted, wherever we wanted, continuously. And the world was supposed to go upward, continue to go upward. So the pandemic forced a stop a cooling off, right? Human being, we're suffering right now. Huh? We lost many people. There's suffering because we there's constraint. The planet actually is not doing as bad as it used before. It is still doing bad because of all the damage we've done to it. But this is a time where the human beings have a force to slow down. And I see this as a positive sign because if we are uh, let to do that on our own, we proved that we were incapable to slow down. We knew the planet was not doing good. We knew the economical growth could not be sustained. So the pandemic has brought us a big stone on our path, big stone. Oh, we're not used to stone, so we have doubt. How are we going to come out of this? How are we going to survive? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, how many millennium have we been on this planet? We figured it out. So we're going to get out of it. But the, this is an opportunity to take advantage of a moment where we are forced to be put in more and, and engage inward to adjust or to finally look at ourselves and understand what could be changed in our own life to be in a better shape. Who died first with the pandemic? Uh, it's, it's awful, but there, there is a message, which is also what are we individually doing for our health every day, not waiting for us to be sick. So I see this time as an invitation, forced invitation to regroup, and to me, the, the health of a society is the cumulative effect of the health of its people. And it's not just mental, 
it's physical, right? So uh, the work of Stéphane, the, my work, the work of, of many people actually, is not to, is to, to warn us of, the, uh, of an illusion, which is the return to before, but also a message of responsibility to be able to remap the way our societies have been defining themselves. But the society cannot change if the individual don't change. So to me, it's a great invitation to enter a new phase of, your, of our humanity with more left brain and right brain. Healers have a say. I mean, as, as um, someone in my position where I have consultation after consultation, I'm tired of fixing people and they go back to the same job, to the same situation, and they come back and they need the fix again. Talk about the chiropractors, talk about the doctors. We are tired. What we want to do is work with people who are actually investing in the future. It's coming, Stefan. Yeah, it's kind of obvious that we are living in a very confused uh, time. And, 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 but I think this confusion starts inside ourselves. Uh, we are just a kind of a little part of the world, but also a little mirror of, of the world. So if you want to decrease and to erase the confusion in the world, you should start by yourself. It's, it's what Maripia is saying. If you, if you are just waiting for outside to fix your problem, the problem will still come back. You need to work on yourself and to be... To, to trust life, to trust the beauty of life, that you are safe, even though you are opening yourself, and if you, even though you, you are changing deeply uh, what needs to be changed inside of you. Confusion comes only because of the activity of our brain, activity of our personality wants to protect us from everything that would invade you from outside. At first, it's a good protection, but on the long term, it's also a prison where you are uh, just keeping yourself. I mean, for me, on a very, very simple way, I'm trying every day to try to decrease my confusion. And for this, I'm trying to take some time every day to stop the activity of my automatic brain um, functioning. It means just 15 minutes of meditation. 15 minutes of doing nothing, stop thinking, stop answering the phone, stop having an activity, uh, just letting your brain to calm down a little bit because all the answers are inside of you. We are infinite. Uh, I have um, a lot of admiration and, and even though a lot of love for a, a man by the name of Ram Das. I don't know if uh, or your listener know him. He, he was a psychologist yeah. at Harvard by the name of Richard Alper. He was fired from Harvard in the early 60s because he was giving LSD to his student, which was a very good idea, but uh, maybe not at this time. Uh, so instead of uh, doing a depression, he, he flew to India and he became, I mean, he, he met uh, yoga and meditation. And he became a spiritual leader uh, and he changed his name by Ramdas. And he died a little bit more than one year ago. This, this man just reminds us that we, we are a soul. We don't have a soul. 
we are a soul, we are spir spiritual beings, we, we have a part of us that goes beyond space and time, and this part of us knows everything. It knows the purpose and the meaning of those stones on the path. Um, so maybe the, the the idea is just to try to get in touch with this soul inside of us once every day, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. This reconnection decreases the confusion. This reconnection day by day uh, decreases the level of darkness inside of us. And as we decrease this darkness inside of us, we also decrease the darkness in the world. And this is the only thing I believe. And, and this is for me the only thing to do. Uh, before changing the world, try to heal yourself. This is not selfish. This is the first step to cure and to heal the world. Thank you so much, uh, Marie-Pierre and Stéphane. What a great and fascinating uh, conversation it was and what great insights uh, you provided. Um, so before we, we end uh, this conversation, is there anything uh, else that you'd like uh, to add? The importance of time and patience. Time heals, times, time guides, and uh, we are an Im impatient uh, society. That's it, you know, like, uh, you know, nothing really of quality comes up out of doing things fast. And when you look back, what might have taken so many years, it took me 40 years to be able to live next to an ocean. Well, but once you're there, you're there, you know? So patience is quite a tool. Thank you, Emily. Thank you to everyone for listening to this conversation. An immense thank you to Marie-Pierre and Stéphane for being our guides today and always. Thank you, Marcus Underwood, for leading the production of the Garden and the Moon podcast channel. You can find out all details about Marie-Pierre and Stéphane's works and books on our website, Garden and the Moon.